Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. We're Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer and Jennifer is personing the panel. This week we're going to take a look at music as communication and music in the private emotional spaces that we have and music in the public spaces as well in those palaces of consumption, the shopping mall and the department store. Sandra Garrido researches in the area of music psychology at Western University in Sydney. And she's got a particular interest in understanding emotional responses to music and the influence of personality on musical experience. And she's just published a book entitled, Why Are We Attracted to Sad Music? Hello, Sandra. Hi, John. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. Thank you. And you probably heard our promo twice, right? I did, I did. <laughs> okay, so you won't forget it. <laughs> I'm definitely not. Uh, and uh, look, to start off with, I wanted to ask you, what attracted you to researching sad music? Um, oh, that's a good question. I guess I've always been really interested in how people use music in their lives. You know, music has had a big role in my life. And, yeah, just fascinating to me how it impacts the brain and how it impacts our emotions and things like that. And, yeah, I just became intrigued with that question because most of the time we avoid things that make us feel sad in everyday life. Um, That's sort of almost the evolutionary reason for sadness is to motivate us to avoid things that aren't good for us. But when it comes to music and film and things like that, we seem to actually kind of enjoy it. Mm. And look, I'm go- I am going to put you on the spot because I'm going to ask you a question. Sad music for you is question mark. Now, what kind of music would would you be listening to if you were listening to sad music? Sad music for me. Okay, I've got pretty broad um, taste in music, so I mean, good old Adele springs to mind. Definitely some sad stuff there, and I do kind of enjoy some of that. Um, and then I like classical music as well. Uh, mm. Some of the works by Rachmaninoff and things like that are, are terribly tragic, but beautiful. Right. Okay, I'll, I, I've, I've got to go back in my own head and sort of pull out my own sad music, but I guess everybody has their own version of it. I, I think that's that's right. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We can, something, a piece of music that one person hears as sad, another person might just hear as beautiful or um, peaceful or something like that. So it can often depend very much on the frame of mind that we're in or the circumstances in which we've heard the music before. So, yeah, it can be different for, for each person. I want to turn to your research. And uh, again, just to 
talk a little bit about the sad music. As I understand it, you had 1,000 participants in in this study that you did, or actually part of the book that you, you've written. And was it, a, was it a, pro- a process where they were selecting their own sad music to report on, or how, how did that work? And also I wanted to ask you about their ages. What, what were their age ranges? Um, the the 1,000 participants would have been over multiple studies, and most of those were about people reporting their response to music that they personally considered sad. Um, yeah, there would have been all sorts of ages. We did do a couple of studies that were mostly students, so that would have been sort of adolescents and young young adults. Um, but we've also conducted studies on broader um, samples of the population, which you know included people from from adolescents through until people in their sixties and seventies, probably. And what I wanted to ask, and this is you know again me just sort of. Um curious and interested in in what you found was what were there certain trends say amongst the younger people of particular songs or uh that they would have picked um you know the question i asked earlier about your own preference for sad music was there was a particular trends that you noticed amongst say the younger groups or or even the older groups um there were a couple of songs that came up over and over again um but really quite a broad range of music that people said made them feel sad. And again, that's mm. influenced by the particular music that they like and, and have experience with. But yeah, there were a couple of songs that kind of came up over and over again. Um, yeah, definitely Adele, someone, uh, what's it called? Someone Like You, um, Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton, mm. you know, a few, few things like that that came up mm. quite often. Interesting, interesting. Now, if if I'm reading this correctly, your research found that sad music could be functional and it could be positive and it could help people work through some emotions. But if people were prone to depression, sad music could actually make things worse. Exactly, yeah. As as I was saying before, sadness is a helpful emotion because it helps us to um, it motivates us to examine our lives and think about what's not working, what do we need to change. But um, the idea of that is that the sadness should trigger some kind of um, planning or uh, reframing of events in our mind so that we actually come through it, we come out the other side either feeling better with a new perspective or with some plans for how we're going to solve whatever it is that's making us feel sad. But for people with tendencies to depression, it can actually have the opposite effect. It can actually just trigger patterns of negative thinking that they find very difficult to break out of because of the brain chemistry that's involved. And that can be quite a dangerous thing um, to actually be perpetuating um, somebody's mental state when it's already very negative yeah, it really can be quite a dangerous thing for those individuals. You you use the term uh, r- uh, rumination factor, and uh, you, you sort of talked a bit about, as I was reading some of your work, you were talking about people who are ruminators and people who have r- ruminate, they're high ruminators and there's low ruminators. I was interested in that as well. What Could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, so rumination is that tendency that I mentioned to get stuck in negative patterns, negative thoughts. 
Um, so there's a difference between rumination and reflection. When we have something go wrong in our life, it's quite a healthy thing to think about it, to reflect on it, think about why it went wrong, what can we do better next time, um, you know, how did it make me feel, all of those kinds of things. That's quite healthy, but that's generally a, a, a process that we come through and out the other side feeling much better. But rumination tends to be more um, a pattern where somebody gets stuck in quite sort of fatalistic and pessimistic thinking, um, like, you know, this kind of thing always happens to me. I'm, you know, my life is always going to be terrible. That sort of thinking can often be triggered by somebody who's a ruminator. And so actually listening to music that triggers those kinds of thoughts doesn't help them to break out of their depression as it would with somebody who's experiencing um, what I would call a, a normal sad reaction to something that's happened. Are there are there any indications that you've found um, in terms of percentages of people who are, I, I guess you would call them deep ruminators or people who, as you've described them, uh, find it difficult to get out of this? Is, it, is, it, is there a, a percentage in the population that, that is essentially is part of that group or how does it work? Um, I haven't come across any particular figures about who are ruminators, um, but it's very strongly connected to depression. So if you're a ruminator, you are very, very likely to experience an episode of clinical depression in your life. And we know that the figures around that can be something like one in two people yeah. will experience at least one episode of major depression in their life. Oh. But then there are all those people out there who are never diagnosed, mm. um, may never become aware of the fact that that's mm. what is troubling them, um, or may be reluctant to go and get a, a, a diagnosis from a professional. So, I mean, it really is hard to know, mm. um, yeah, how many people out there, but it's definitely something, you know, everybody should try to stay aware of and be thinking you know, whether or not what they're doing to cope with their emotions is actually helping them or is making them get more stuck. And uh, in terms of uh, the ruminators, they were they were picking songs that were, I guess, what, extremely sad and, and telling you about their response to those sad songs. Yeah, and often... Um, the type of music that they would select, when we compared that kind of music to the, um, what the low ruminators would say was sad music, we often found that very often the lyrics were just a little bit more on the extreme side, you know, perhaps even about suicide or mm -hmm. um, a very past-focused or about, about death or um, a broken heart, that kind of thing. Um, whereas other people might find, you know, say that something's sad when it, it, without it being that kind of extreme, um, really suicidal type music. So it tends to suggest that people who have a tendency to depression may actually be pulling out the really, really sad stuff when they're feeling bad, um, as opposed to something that's just kind of, you know, a, a little bit sad. I've got to ask you this because um, I just I just want to ask this. But um, did anybody choose anything like heavy metal or or grindcore as a, as a as a type of sad song? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. All types of genres. Wow. Okay. Very very interesting because, uh, yeah, I mean, some of that can be pretty, pretty dark. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a dark kind of music. Can be. Yes, yeah. Look, I want to finish with a question because this is, I guess, something that you were asking all along. Why don't we listen to happy music when we feel depressed? Well, I guess, again, it comes back to the fact that sadness is a helpful emotion. So our brains are actually programmed to reward us for doing things that are good for us. So um, we we can get, you know, a little, a little mental um, buzz from doing things that are good for us. And so if sadness is a helpful emotion, it's helping us to improve our lives, really. Um, our brains are wired to give us a little mental reward for indulging in a bit of sad music. And for most people, it works. It's really only for that, um, you know, that smaller percentage of people, hopefully, uh, for whom it isn't working, that, that it becomes a problem. And that's because those normal processes that should be going on when we feel sad are sort of backfiring for them. I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown. Very interesting to talk to you. And uh, the book's called... Uh, it's a pleasure. And your book's called Why Are We Attracted to Sad Music? It's published by Springer. And we've been talking with... Sandra Sandra Garrido, and she researches the connection between music and emotions and works at Western Sydney University. 3CR presents an afternoon of great music at the Northcote Social Club on Sunday 30th of April. Ekranoplans, a bunch of hard-rocking psychedelic Soviet sympathisers. Winter Sun, who swing from dirty-ass blues to bittersweet ballads. Plus BJ Morizonkel, who's a weirdo composer and one-man band who combines cartoon music and depressed cowboy pop songs. The Northcote Social Club, High Street Northcote, on Sunday 30th of April. Doors open at 1.30. Pre-sale discounted tickets at northcotesocialclub.com. Show your love for 3CR and support the musicians who support 3CR. Are you agitated? Are you agitated? This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to... Fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the... 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers 
and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Let's make it the largest walk yet. Demanding permanent protection in Australia for asylum seekers found to be refugees, closure of detention centres and freedom for all refugees. Join the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice. Hear a human rights lawyer, a teacher, a refugee and a panel of interfaith speakers. Sunday the 9th of April at the State Library in Swanson Street at 2pm with our walk through the city finishing back at the State Library by 3.30. Organised by the Refugee Advocacy Network, a 3CR supporter. And uh, you're on Communication Mixdown. Let's move out of our heads and away from the emotions and into the public domain. Let me set the scene. You need to do some shopping. You're off to Coles. You're trudging around the aisles. And the store music is incessant. It's loud. It's inescapable. And by the time you leave, you've got a headache. And you're saying to yourself, I'm never going to come to this place again. Now, my particular gripe is cafes with overloud, intolerable music and doctors' waiting rooms where they play commercial FM pop music. Michael Walsh is a sociologist at the University of Canberra, and he's been investigating the impact of sound in public places. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you going? Good. Now, briefly, tell us about your research and what you're finding. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, as you were saying, this is a very interesting area of research. And what we found was that there were actually a number of different ways in which people registered certain types of musics within particular locations. So in a shopping centre, for instance, a supermarket, we did tend to get quite a negative response, uh, people's experiences of hearing music. Um, and that was for a number of t- particular reasons. Maybe we can talk about those. But also there was the possibility of people actually feeling uh, more kind of um, positive experiences as well as both as, as negative. So there there's tends to be um, an interesting thing where music can, depending upon the listener, um, it can represent a positive or a negative experience. I was very interested when I was reading a little bit about your work. I was very interested in that story about the uh, person who was so engaged and energized by the music. She, they were afraid that they were going to start dancing in the aisles. Well, in fact, she was actually starting to move, and um, and 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 she refers to herself actually as a public widow in inverted commas. And so, you know, it's a very interesting thing here because what it tends to represent is that the individual feels as though they should be relatively docile in a public place because, you know, we're not meant to kind of um, be overly kind of communicative when we're around strangers. But at the same time, the music was still able to kind of generate a sense of connection with that person, with the participant. And she felt she felt inclined to move, um, and so there's yeah quite an interesting tension there detected in that, and that's obviously an instance where music uh, has worked in, in this case. Unlike my grumpy old self <laughs> strolling around. Anyway, look, the, the thing that was interesting for me as well is you made mention of the fact that sound was a, a very particular medium in relation to the ear, unlike, say, for example, sight in relation to the eye. Tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. So this is kind of based upon some uh, sociological work done by a couple of sociologists um, by the name, or one by the name of Irving Goffman and another by Georg Zimmel. And these theorists actually kind of talk about the role of the senses and in our interactions in everyday life. And so Georg Zimmel was actually quite interested in how um, 
the ear is actually what he calls um, always on and always open. And so unlike, say, the eye that we can kind of control or focus in and out of kind of direction of phenomena, with the ear, it's, it's much less kind of uh, discreet. You can't choose to listen to something or, or not kind of listen to it. it. It's much more kind of pervasive and it spills over into different locations, unlike, say, vision does. Mm. And uh, you mentioned, uh, so it's essentially the ear hasn't got that kind of gatekeeper, uh, I suppose you could say, a yeah. kind of gatekeeper sort of function. You do mention Irving Goffman, the sociologist Irving Goffman, and uh, you use his work to explain some of shopper annoyance. The term that uh, he uses and you use is territories of the self. What, yes. what, what do you mean by that, or what does he mean by that? Well, he, yeah, it's quite interesting. So Goffman uh, is actually, I guess, invoking a bit of Freudian uh, approaches to the understanding of the self in, in this respect. But he's really using it in terms of uh, how we, during our everyday interactions, will engage and um, expect certain types of um, people to actually engage with us in ways that um, show affordance for, say, our, our personal space. So when we're in public, we expect people don't in- intervene into our personal space um, unless a situation requires. And, for instance, you can think of an elevator where there might be um, 10 people in an elevator where you're pressed up against one another versus there's one other person in the elevator and space has to be distributed in a way that registers that. So a person standing next to you and there's only one other person would be a bit unusual, but if there's 10 of you, then personal space can be encroached. But he talks also about, very interestingly, sound space. And a similar kind of thing in terms of personal space is that it is actually something that um, can be registered as uh, connecting with people or you can connect with another person through your use of sound space, but it also can be an interference or something that kind of takes away from your engagement in public space. The other thing that you found was that there are ways of, def- I guess you could, uh, the way I would describe it is defending your territory, the territory of self. What were some of the strategies that you found in your research that people use? Well, the, the obvious and probably the most um, uh, frequent one is, of course, people's use of, especially if we're talking about in, in music, in musical terms, is actually the use of uh, portable music devices or other types of earbuds that you can use to obviously zone out or um, at least auditorially exclude yourself from a particular environment. And so I had probably about, I think it was a quarter or maybe 30% of my participants that actually did use personalised devices to kind of shield themselves from the, the noises or sounds of a supermarket. But there are other ways. Uh, people tended to also try to get through the space as quickly as possible. So if they were shopping, they would try and um, get, you know, completely get through the, the, you know, the grocery shop as quickly as they could. And the other one, which is um, less kind of practical, is just completely avoiding a space. Um, mm. and, and that was something quite prevalent as well. Yeah, that, that would probably in the end be my strategy, but not entirely because sometimes you can't avoid exactly right. <laughs> Yeah. So totally. we did actually, sorry, we did actually find though that we're, there were some supermarkets that were instru- introducing what we call um, quiet hours shopping, where they would actually really um, think about people that aren't able to process auditory communication in the same way that a, a typical person might be able to, and where they would actually turn off the music, they would um, dim the kind of register noises, uh, they wouldn't be grinding things like coffee and all of these things mm-hmm. during this period, this hour period, to kind of allow people that have difficulties with processing auditory communication. Mm-hmm some actual reprieve. So, yeah. That's very interesting. Now, what about the future, public space and sonic environments? Where are we going or is there is there any way that these things can be modified or are we just, uh, is this something we, we basically have to live with? 
It's a very interesting question and, and one that um, obviously I'll obviously be continuing to uh, research into the future. Uh, but I, I don't want, I don't as a researcher anyway, want to be too prescriptive about this because I think there's enough kind of in actually trying to understand the dynamics that are happen in public locations without saying that we should all have no music or we should have music because I think, you know, as our research does suggest, there are instances where music in, in public locations that is um, by chance can be really affirming and, and uplifting. And I'm sure, um, you know, for instance, uh, people busking in, in the street, um, that, that can be quite, mm. it can be beautiful sometimes. It can also be, um, you know, not at the same time. Mm. So uh, if, if you kind of come down on one side of the fence too hard, I, I think uh, there's a danger in, I guess, um, not seeing the, the value of having a diversity of sound across everyday life and in public spaces in particular. I want to thank you very much for being on Communication Mixdown, Michael, and uh, good luck with your research, and we might check back after a little while, see how you're going. Sure. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And that was Michael Walsh. He's a sociologist at the University of Canberra, and, and he was, as you heard, talking about sonic dimensions of public spaces. That's a fancy way of saying the impact of loud, uncontrollable music in your local supermarket.